perspective. Perspective is a critical part of our lives. How we view the world around us, how we view other people, how we interpret their words, their body language. In fact, perspective can almost be said to be one of the most essential aspects of our life because it really influences how we view this life and how we interpret the circumstances or the, the events in life or the, even the political nature that we face or anything that might come, we, we have a perspective on what's going on in life. Perspectives can change, though, can't they? I had a friend during seminary who came out here with me to Colorado one summer to work in a camp ministry, and he was from West Virginia, great guy, though he's from West Virginia. Um, his name was Andy, and Andy came out here to Colorado, and yeah, he knew about the Appalachian, how do you say that? Appalachian Mountains, but he came out and he landed at DIA, and as we're driving down I-70 west from DIA, towards the mountains, he's on the phone with his mom, and he says, wow, mom, the Rocky Mountains really are big. And we chuckled like you and laughed and teased him the entire time that he was here in Colorado saying, yes, of course, we have real mountains. You might think those mountains in West Virginia are mountains, but not compared to ours. Perspective changes. When you encounter new things and new ideas, and this psalm, Psalm 8, really brings us to the place where, as we have been tracing through Psalm 1 through 7 so far, we've had a perspective of life. We've seen that there's opposition against God and against God's people. We've seen that there's difficulties that we face. And in many ways, these first seven psalms we've considered in the book so far have been helping us to navigate through the difficulties of this life. And Psalm 8 brings to us now a and even, may I say, bigger perspective? A brighter perspective, one that David, as he writes, he, he just inherently invites us in to see this perspective with him, to, to see with maybe new eyes or renewed eyes or transformed eyes everything that's going on in this world and in our lives. It's an interesting psalm, though, because it's direct, directed entirely to God. As you've heard already this morning, it starts out in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord. And then it ends in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord. In many of the other psalms, the, the writers address the audience or the congregation around that's singing with them or maybe their own hearts, their own souls. But here the whole psalm seems to be directed entirely to God. David is consumed with this vision of God, this, this new insight that I'm sure did not come in a moment. Just like for us today, it's not going to come in a moment. But here's the call to us from Psalm 8. All of us are called to learn to praise God. In fact, we were created to praise God. Everything in all creation was made to bring glory and honor and praise to God, including you. So Psalm 8 calls us to learn to praise God even now. Even now. And that's really where sort of the problem comes because for many of us it's so difficult to praise God. 
In fact, we look around our own lives and there's things that we have faced or there's opposition or there's gossip or slander or there's difficulty or sickness and cancer and death, even as we heard prayed about just a moment ago. And we wonder, how? How do we praise God even now? So that might be the very question in your mind. Okay, Matt. Okay, David. You're calling us to praise God. In fact, you're even showing us how to praise God. But how do we praise God? How do we get to this place where we actually are learning to praise God even now? Well, David carefully and gently but exuberantly guides us in this. He invites us in to consider some things. And verses 1 and 2 lay out the first consideration that David wants us to see. He wants us to stop and consider. He wants us to consider that in the scope of all creation, everything has been created to bring God praise, whether it's great or small. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The, The glory, the majesty of God permeates all of the earth. The end of verse 1, you have set or you have placed your glory above the heavens. Or maybe in your translation, it says in the heavens. What's the idea? The idea is that here, God is so great and majestic that he has placed. He has made it to be so that his majesty, his glory is embedded in and above the heavens. How can this be? It seems that inherently David is confessing that God, Yahweh, Elohim, our Lord, our sovereign one, is our creator. This is the only way that his glory, his majesty can be set in or above the heavens is if he is the one who made it and placed it there, which is exactly what he said. But then we, we're not totally shocked by that because I think most of us here are familiar with this text or maybe we're familiar with the idea of a creator God. But then verse 2, I think somewhat startles us. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still or to silence the enemy and the avenger. Okay, we get maybe the greatness of the heavens and God's glory and majesty there, but what about this? What about this? That God has ordained, God has established, the Sovereign One has ordained that there would be praise or strength, as we read here, established because of your foes from the mouths of babies and infants. What do we do with that? What was David considering when he wrote these words? Was it his own children? Running around, scurrying around, giving praise to God because of how he's led them as children? I'm not sure. Maybe some of you, in your experience as your own children, maybe you're facing difficulty and sometimes they come and they say things like, right, out of the mouth of babes, Daddy, I thought you said that we're supposed to trust God in difficult times. What are you so worried about? We're supposed to trust Jesus, Mommy. Is it something like that? Or, or was David considering his own life as he looked back and his own experience when, when he went out to the battlefield and there stood Goliath, who was defying the enemies or the, the armies of God? We won't look there, but in 1 
Samuel 17. You can go back and read the story for it's, it's amazing, especially in this context, and you, and you just see the theology unfold. But David goes out to the field, and he asks the question, who is, who is this who defies the army of the living God? And David says, as he continues to ask this question around the army, and, and the Israelites are fearing and they're dismayed, and some of them are even fleeing in fear, he says, David says to them, let no one lose heart. Your servant will go and fight it. And the response of his brothers and the response of the king, Saul, he says to him, you're not able to go out and fight. Why? Because you are only a young man. And then David recounts for him how God has ordained and given him the ability to protect his sheep and the lion and the bear has come and he has delivered and rescued the sheep and he has fought against the lion and bear and killed them. And David responds to the king with confidence. I will go out. And David goes out to the field. And do you remember what Goliath says as he sees him? David, or Goliath looks at him and he, he looks him up and down, as it were, and he says, you are little more than a boy. And he despised him. And he says, am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And he curses David and defies David and continue to defy the armies of the living God. And David says in response, you come out with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh, Lord, the almighty Elohim creator, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Oh, what praise from the mouth of David against the enemies of God. And he says, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And the whole world, the whole earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And you know the rest of the story, right? This little more than a young boy goes out and silences the enemy of God. God ordained it to be this way. God established, David says, through revelation, that out of the mouth of babies and influence, you have established praise, strength because of your foes. To do what? To silence them, to still them, to stop them. And this is an amazing thing. Oh, you who are old in your own eyes or not so old in your own eyes, this is a gentle warning to you. Don't despise the energy and the praise of God that flows from the lips of the younger generation. Encourage it. Foster it. Come alongside of them and encourage them. Yes, how can we help you silence the enemies of God? We're not going to hold you down. So that's a little speculation. Maybe that's where David is writing this from, but... But in Matthew 21, if you want to turn there, you can. There's going to be two New Testament texts I want us to see. But Matthew 21, Jesus himself now picks up this text and quotes it in a way that, that gives us an illumination in a way that we would have never seen. In Matthew 21, verses 14 to 16, Jesus is in the temple. And, and here's a unique scene where 
where Jesus actually enters in and he cleanses the temple, pushing out those who are making this house of worship and this house of prayer a place of profit for their own advancement and for their own pleasure and not the pleasure and the worship of God. And as Jesus drives them out, those who would defy or oppose the purposes of God, look who comes in in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple courts and he heals them. But when the chief priests and the experts in the law saw the wonderful things he did and heard the children crying out in the temple of courts, Hosanna, praise to the son of David, they became indignant. Verse 16, they say to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus says to them, yes. But have you never read that out of the mouths of children and nursing infants you have prepared praise for yourself? And really, verse 17, there's silence. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. They, they have no response to this. See, we were made to praise a God. God has ordained that out of the mouth of babies and infants, he's ordained the praise of their lips, this immaterial praise of God to silence the foes and the enemies of God. Even as we're singing this morning, as we're singing this revelation song and crying out about the majesty and the might of our great God who was and is and is to come, there is something spiritual going on. There is a spiritual dynamic where the enemies and the foes of God are actively being silenced. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual darkness. And here is light. And God has ordained these things to be the weapons of our warfare, spiritual weapons, and one of them is praising the name of God. And the enemies of God are silenced. Their slander, their opposition, their curses against God and his people are silenced. Like Goliath. Like the Pharisees and the experts in the law who think they understand God. So David calls us to consider the scope of creation, whether the vastness of the universe, the greatness of it where God's glory is set in it, or the small things, the weak things. God has ordained the weak things of the world to show his strength and might. But verse 3 and 4, we have something else to consider. David says, will you consider with me not just the greatness of this God, but his great care for you in this life? So he says, if you will just stop with me, if you will just stop and truly consider, you might gain some perspective. As you consider, yes, the greatness of this God, but also his great care for you. So look at verse 3 and 4 of Psalm 8. He says this, when, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So here it is. He says, take a look. Take a step back. In fact, I almost had a presentation this morning. Uh, we had some technical glitches, so you don't see it, but just images of stars and galaxies. You've seen them, right? You've gone to the IMAX. You've gone to the planetarium. You've, you've seen the pictures of, from Hubble on the Internet, and you've just been in awe. Dave didn't have any of that. He just goes outside in the darkness, and he looks up at the stars, and he stops, and he considers the moon and the stars. 
which he can merely see from his mere human eyes. He didn't have a telescope. didn't have Hubble. didn't have IMAX, the planetarium. And he stops and considers the greatness of the universe, the work of God's fingers. And the, the idea there, the metaphor there, you know, is this intricate detail that God has in this creation. And really the greatness of our God as he places the moon and the stars in their place with his fingers. What great care and detail. The closest we get to this is sort of these uh, tourist pictures when they go to places like Washington, D.C. or to France. And, and you've, you've seen them, right? These very funny but kind of corny pictures of people holding the Eiffel Tower between their fingers. Or the Washington Monument. And it looks like they could just crush it, right? What an illusion, right? Why? Because of the perspective. But it doesn't fool us. We know that these humans are small compared to the Eiffel Tower or the Washington Monument or whatever else it is that they're trying to capture in their fingers. But this metaphor here by David is not meant to deceive us or draw us into an illusion. He's meant, it's meant to capture our minds and awaken our spiritual sensitive eyes to see the greatness of our God. And he is so big that we can't even comprehend him that he sets these things, the stars and the moon, in place with his fingers. He's transcendent over all things. He's bigger than we can imagine. There's not a corner in all the earth, the universe, where, where we cannot say God is not here or God has not made that or God is not in control. There's nowhere that we can go and say that our God is majestic and magnificent in a way that we cannot imagine. So as we go out with David to look at the stars and consider the heavens, they cry out to us how big and how great our God is. But even from a secular point of view, we come to a conclusion. right? Even one of the videos I was watching as I was thinking about how to capture this for you was from, from a secular position. They were talking about the billions of years of the creation, well, not creation, of the universe. And at the very end, the commentator says, And here's the reality. Here's the reality. We occupy a very small place in this universe. See, even the secular mind can look at the greatness and the vastness of the universe and come to the same conclusion. We are very small. We are very small. But, verse 4, as he comes to this startling conclusion that we are very small, He asks a fitting question. What is man? What is man? Who are we? Why are we here? What's our purpose? What is man? But he doesn't stop there, because that would simply be the secular mindset. But here we have the revelation from God. David says, what is man? That you this great, majestic, sovereign creator God, that you are mindful of him. And he's speaking of humanity in general, not just Adam and not just me as a man or you as a person, as an individual, but humanity in general, which of course has the individual aspect in it. What is man? That you're mindful of him and the son of man, that you care for him. See here, this detail, this God who sets the moon and the stars in place with his fingers also has the detail of care for humanity, this smallness that we occupy, the small space that we occupy, he cares. Very small details. He's mindful. He sees. He cares. 
it's here that we should probably stop and pause. We can't too long. But I would encourage you to do this this week, maybe. Would you take your cues from David? Would you consider God's great care for you? Would you go out and consider the vastness of this universe, the stars, the moon? How big this God is, yet, yet he cares for you. Would you consider today the many ways that he does care for you, for all humanity, the breath he gives us, the air to breathe, the water to drink, the body he's given you, to occupy the ability to think, the creative power he's bestowed on you, the capacity to love and be loved, the little joys of life that he gives to you, the delights of laughter, the delights of sun, the delights of snow, the delights of exercise, the little joys, the reminders that he hears and that he heals and he answers prayer and he gives and he loves and he comforts and he provides and he intervenes in your life and he avenges and he defends and he restores and he redeems and he renews and he transforms and he gives even himself for you. For God loved the world in this way. For God cares for the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son so that all who would believe in him would not perish, but that they would have eternal life through Christ. So what is man? What is humanity? Humanity is God's special creation. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, and that's exactly what he looks to next in verses 5 to 8. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. He has poured out on us the honor and glory his own honor and glory in creation. And so David looks back to creation, back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he rehearses the story in his mind, and he's just in awe. Yet, though we are so small and weak and insignificant in your creation in this vast universe, and compared to you, we're nothing. Yet, verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. And what was this glory and honor? Well, it was the image of God himself that he placed on us. And we see that by what comes next. He says, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. If a king bestows glory and honor someone, he bestows power. He bestows rights and authority. And this is what God has done for us in creation. He has bestowed on humanity his own image to rule and reign over all the works of his hands. You have put all things under his feet, verse 6. And then he lists out, as Genesis 1 did, the animal kingdom, all sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. The scope of the entire animal kingdom and, and the domains in which they dwell, the oceans and the land, all of this is implied that God has set humanity over all of it. To rule and reign as he would if he himself were here. He has left us to do that, to rule in his place, to image him, to represent him well by ruling well, by working for life, by striving against the darkness. And even in the fall, we know that this is not a perfect world, but even in the fallen state, the sinful world we live, even as David considers it, he looks and he sees and he catches glimpses of the honor and the glory of God on display through humanity, even fallen humanity. 
of when they are ruling well, when they are working towards life, when they are seeking to serve others and protect others, when they are cultivating the land and, and serving the animal kingdom well, not simply consuming it or destroying it, but cultivating it so that all life can thrive and flourish. Because this is what God does. And this is what God is. He is about life. But yet we see the problem too, though, when humans don't work towards that. And we feel the disconnect. And we feel the pain and the brokenness of this creation. And so this is the second New Testament text I want you to turn to. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. So just as Jesus himself quotes this text, and it helps us illumine our understanding of the praise that comes from the mouth of children and infants. Here, the writer of Hebrews quotes for us this psalm to help us understand the purpose of Jesus. Begin reading in verse 5. And as we look at the creation, as we take the perspective that, that David has, we anticipate, we look forward, we say, yes, not all is right, and we long for and look for Christ, this true human, this true Adam, who will make all things right. And here we have verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, that is, the new creation. This creation, or the new creation, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, verse 6. I love it. It's been testified somewhere. The writer of Hebrews is not ignorant of where it is. I think he's just saying, here's the reality. It has been spoken. It has been written. The scriptures testify to this reality. And he quotes this psalm. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Okay. Now the explanation. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Does that look like that now? Does it look like everything is under the control of humanity, of God, of Christ? No. That's our difficulty. This is the reason why we must learn to praise God even now. And this psalm in Hebrews helps us, right? Because he says, then, at present, verse 8, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Thank you, writer of Hebrews. Thank you for entering into our dilemma. At present, we do not see this. You say it's true, and it's not happening. We do not see everything in subjection to him, but, verse 9, but, we see him. Who's him? Keep reading. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. See, here's the incarnation. Here is the theology of Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2, Jesus in the incarnation did not lay aside any of his divine being, but he took on flesh. He took on humanity to identify with us, to enter into our suffering, to be with us. And for a little while, he was made lower than the angels to identify with us. Now, 
Keep reading. Look what happens to him. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The same phrase from Psalm 8. The same phrase that the author of Hebrews just quoted. Humanity is crowned with glory and honor. Now Jesus, who takes on human flesh, is crowned with glory and honor. But why? Because of the suffering of death. So that, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, death is the ultimate sign that this creation is under a curse, that it is broken in its need and redemption, and that ultimately we're longing and looking forward to the new creation that only Christ can bring. But even in this fallen creation, we catch glimpses of the glory and power and majesty of our God through its greatness and through its vastness. But here, Jesus comes as the second Adam, the true Adam, the one who will redeem humanity, and he is crowned with glory and honor because he suffers and dies so that by grace he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, For it was fitting. In God's mind, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, the creator God, our Father, in bringing many sons into this glory, he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. See, God ordained praise to come to his name through this as well through the suffering and the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that all who believe in Him will no longer face the condemnation of sin and the brokenness of this world, but they can enter into true life having forgiveness of sin and joy. So we consider not just the creation, its greatness and its smallness, we consider not just the great care of God for us in, in very real ways on an everyday basis in his creation. We even don't consider just the honor that we have as human beings in creation, that we have rule and reign over this planet and the works of God. But we consider the greatness of our God in sending his son to be our redemption, to die in our place. And as we consider these things, though David may not have understood the fullness of the revelation, he looks forward to this redemption. And we look back through the eyes of the New Testament, through the the lens of progressive revelation in Scripture, and we're able to see clearly and learn to praise our God. So this morning, would you come to the only fitting conclusion that we can? When you consider all of this, the psalmist ends, right? Verse 9. You consider all of this, and there's only one fitting conclusion. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.